Amen. If you have a Bible close to you in your hands, on your phone, on your iPad, uh, you can go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are going to spend a little time today. And as you're turning there, um, I had this, this thing happen. It was really funny. Tuesday, I was at lunch at the middle school, and I was talking to a couple of sixth grade ladies, and I asked them if they had ever thought about running for student council. We were gearing up, and now we're gearing down, right? It's this weird time. And they looked at me as if I was a three-headed dragon. They were like, I don't even know what that means. And I, I told them, I said, come on, if you run for student council, you could be the first female president and vice president ever. And just making stuff up, right? That's, that's how we get through the day. And they looked at me in their cute little masks, and they gasped. You could see it. They were like, oh, we're going to do it. And then Tuesday night, I went home, and I watched the first presidential debate. And in the middle of that mess, I thought, man, I wish I could vote for those sweet little ladies <laughs> over those two <laughs> clowns that were on the TV. Um, friends, we are jumping into a brand new series today. And this series is designed intentionally to make you uncomfortable and hopefully better in this election season. We are going to spend the next four weeks in this conversation, all of October, and then we're going to take the first Sunday of November, the Sunday before Election Day, and we're going to have a time of worship and prayer on behalf of our nation and our world. The Sunday before the election, we will not preach. I will not preach. We will simply pray and worship together, and we will reaffirm. We will reaffirm our faith and our trust that despite the outcomes that may occur on Tuesday, November 3rd. We may have a new president or the same president, but we will still have the same king. Amen? And we will submit our allegiance to him above all else. So as we jump in today, I want to tell you how I became political. I, I identify myself as political. We can identify in whatever way we want this, this generation, right? We can do that. So I identify as political, but I want to tell you how it happened. My Political story started in fifth grade, whether you can believe that or not. It started in fifth grade. Our country was at war. It was the first Gulf War, Desert Shield, that became Desert Storm. And I remember catching snippets of the news, but all I knew in fifth grade was that there was this one single bad guy, and his name was Saddam Hussein. That's all I knew, right? And I thought like any good Rambo movie that if the U.S. soldiers went and killed that singular bad guy, everything would be good and okay, right? And so I fell in love with American flags, yellow ribbons. My room was decked out with patriotic symbolism, eagles, flags, everywhere. And then I took my politics a little far, like a little too far. Nobody's ever done that, I know. But, but for me, that was the, that was the journey. I, my friends and I, who love spending our free time at school drawing pictures, began to illustrate cartoons featuring Saddam Hussein eating tomahawk missiles. Like this is this was my fifth grade experience, right? Um, don't forget, you have masks on, so I can't see if you really care about what I'm saying. So use your eyes, like move a little bit. We're, we're going to be there today. We were good artists, and we made some pretty graphic drawings, as elementary kids are good at doing, and we would have been suspended today. That, that was just a different, different time. And then we got in some trouble because some of our cartoons went a little too far with our political propaganda by invoking some of the basic curse words directed at Saddam. So Fifth grade, and I'm already swearing over politics. Like, that's, that's what, what took place. And my political journey be, continued as I became a follower of Jesus in a church climate that, like many of our church climates today, wholeheartedly embraced the political spectrum known as the right or the conservative worldview. And what that meant was that, for me, the gospel clearly boiled down. Now, I'm talking about my understanding, not necessarily what, what the folks that were raising me in the faith believed, but I'm talking my my understanding, my perception, the gospel clearly boiled down to Jesus. 
Jesus as Savior and inviter of all those who would submit to his lordship to heaven forever, which is better than hell. But the gospel also meant one should be pro-life, anti-homosexual, and longing for prayer to be back in schools because that would surely lead our nation back to God. I can say that, honestly, for me, the idea of Christianity placed the importance of Jesus as Lord to go to heaven at the exact same importance as Americans having conservative politics. That was my perception. I'm not saying that's the intentionality. That's what I understood. Those were my teenage years. I was still political later on. I discovered a great show, perhaps the greatest, I think, television show of all time called The West Wing. How many of you have seen The West Wing? The rest of you are missing out, right? My parents watched this show while I was in high school, but to me it always seemed boring. There was too much talking about things I didn't understand or care about. But then in college, I discovered the show in a new way, and I found myself transfixed with the complexity of conversations I should have been taught in my social studies classes that never really made sense until I saw the president on that show both praying to Jesus out of his Catholic faith and engaging the complexity of human compassion and political maneuvering. He was, get ready for it, a liberal politician and a believer in God. Can you imagine? It messed me up. You guys okay? We're going to laugh a little bit during this series. Everybody relax. This is when politics got a lot more difficult for me. As with any part of our human development from childhood to adolescence to adulthood, the issues moved from black and white, simple and clear, to hazy and complex. And I started to care. I started to disagree, and I started to wrestle in new ways and do that thing that all people who tend to get old to do. I started to care about watching the news. And so in my own emergence toward adulthood, I got political. I'm sorry, but I did, and it has not gone away. But there was one more pivotal piece for me that started to happen. Actually, it happened at several points along my own journey. It was always deeply connected to people, moments and instances with people. Like the first time I I felt this complexity was uh, talking to a man on the street in South Africa. I'd gone there for a a short-term mission trip in high school, and his name was Moses, and he'd lost his wife and kids to AIDS. They had died, and there was no solution. We just sang about the solution, right? There was no solution for him. And he lived in a country where his skin color was the majority population, but the minority population with white skin got to make decisions about power and status. And he didn't understand why God would let that happen in this apartheid culture. And he was standing there asking me, this 17-year-old white American kid, why does God allow this to happen? And I had absolutely no answers. And I had that experience again when one of my best friends, a pastor in Kentucky, spoke to a group of our colleagues about how his son had been out playing with friends in the street and a cop approached them and made his son get on the ground and be frisked while his son's friends were left alone. And the only difference in these friends was, again, the color of his son's brown skin from his friend's white skin. And I had no answers, no understanding to that. And I've had that experience so many times since then, like the time I had to call the abuse hotline while we were living in Michigan because a student in our youth ministry was being abused. And this hotline was the central governmental way of handling these things, and it was the only way of handling these things. There were no other options, and when I called and made the report, nothing happened coming out of that. It did not get fixed. The child did not get into a safer place. And I had that experience this week when we found out a student in our county was homeless and one of the agencies designed to help these situations could do nothing because no active abuse was happening. 
Like those things, those experiences that have kept happening throughout my life. And, and maybe I'm getting cynical, but I notice them a lot more. And I realize that like you, I don't neatly fit into one political label. Now listen, if you're here and you fit in one clean box, I'm fine with that. We'll talk about that during this series. But I'm happy it seems simple for you. But most of us, I don't think we fit in the nice, neat boxes and the nice, neat labels. I think in reality right now, we are full of complex thinking and a lot of wrestling and a ton of frustration over the current state of affairs, kind of like the collective nausea so many of us felt Tuesday after watching the debate or the three minutes that you could get through of the debate. Amen? Uh, I know so many of my friends were like, is this the best we have, these two candidates? But really, that's not my question. Is these, are these the best we have? That's not the question. It's not the question from all those experiences I just described. The question I have politically is more about how broken can we get before something gets fixed? How messed up can it be before we start to step in and find out how we can engage? How screwed up can our political world and the politicians that run it be? And maybe more importantly, why are we so divided? And most importantly, I think, what does it look like? This is the question I want us to wrestle with in this series. What does it look like for those of us who follow Christ to live in the midst of this political world, this political climate, and especially over the next month, this political moment? How do we stay faithful to Jesus and not lose our minds or our ability to stand as witnesses to his kingdom? So we're starting this conversation today, and I've called it Citizens, the Politics of Jesus and the Kingdom of God. And we're going to go all in, all in for the next few weeks on the awkwardness of these conversations, the emotions of these conversations, the difficulty of these conversations. And you need to know you're welcome to disagree and you're welcome to struggle, but you are, now listen closely to this, you are, I'm speaking of, to those of you who identify as followers of Christ here, you are not welcome to simply check out of the political conversation. Now listen to just what I, what I just said. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you're off the hook, right? If you want to revoke your faith for the next four weeks, I wouldn't, but whatever. No stress. Take this message and do with it what you will if you don't follow Jesus. But if you are a Jesus follower, you cannot check out of politics. Now I know that's controversial. I know that. I hear that. Many, many people will come to me, they'll tell me, they will passive-aggressively write me emails or text messages or tell a friend, hey, can you let Justin know this happens in my life? We don't need to talk about politics. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to engage. It's private. It's not really anybody's business. They put their heads down and they want me to leave them alone, don't you? Come on. And I get it. I do. But you have to get this. You have to understand this. To avoid all politics is to simply is simply ignoring the very political world that we live in. It's like thinking if you simply say you don't believe in gravity, you'll someday be able to fly yourself to the moon. Right? It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. I I don't get into gravity doesn't mean you're suddenly able to fly. It doesn't work that way. Let me give you an example. In the early 19th century, there were churches, several churches who did not speak out against slavery because they said we don't want to get to Political, yes, it's a hot cultural issue, but we will just stay out of it. The problem was that their lack of political engagement in an issue like slavery was actually an allowance and a support of the current status quo. It was leaving life as it was. So we could say this, I think, to not be political is to take a political stance. It's what we do. We all, every one of us, live in a world that, like gravity, is deeply affected by politics. Have you noticed 
few of you have. Most of you are like, I'm just putting my head down here, right? Just like denying politics doesn't mean we get to stay out of it. So I start there to say one more time, Jesus followers in the room, you don't get to just check out. We have to dig in and find our way through these conversations as hard as they may be. So as we start this conversation today, I want to tell you a couple things. First, if you're looking, and just grab onto this, most of you I know, I know you're not looking for this, but if you are, if you're looking for a church where everyone thinks the same politically, go somewhere else. We are not it. We are not that place. Praise God from my perspective, right? We are not that place. Second, and this is the critical piece today, this is the piece you have to answer for yourself. I cannot answer this for you. You have to wrestle with this over the next few weeks. It's so critical. Here's the question I want you to wrestle with. Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of your faith rather than create a version of your faith that supports your politics? Do you sense, do you see the difference? Are you willing to to evaluate your political thinking, your political perspective through the filter of your faith in Jesus rather than create a version of the faith that simply supports your politics? Now, let me just say this to you. Most Christians are not willing to do that today. Most of us are not there. Are you willing to follow Jesus, get this, when following Jesus puts space between you and your party? It puts space between you and your political position, or it puts space between you and your political candidate. You are the one that has to answer that, and I would say you are the only one able to answer that. So I want to look at a passage to start today where these same political climates were tense in the early church. And I want to look at this because I think the feelings at this time were the same. The division in the church, in the culture at this time was the same. The anger and fear were the same. And it had to do with a political culture. And the same question that I just asked you faced these early believers. Would they evaluate their politics through the filter of their faith or make their faith fit their politics? Now understand this about Ephesians. Ephesians was a letter written by Paul to the church at Ephesus. It was a city church. It was a multicultural church. It was pre, um, it, it was kind of right after the life of Jesus. And, and before Jesus, you've got to understand, the religion was predominantly Jewish. Only Jewish. And so those outside Judaism were not included. If you were not Jewish, you could not worship Yahweh. To be Jewish meant you were circumcised. You were part of the covenant community. You were blessed by God specially. And so one of the great challenges in the early Christian church, the question they were asking is how we decide who's allowed into our fellowship. How do we decide and and determine who can be a part of our community? If the Gentiles, which basically meant anybody who was not Jewish, are coming to follow Jesus too, what is required of them? Can we allow them into our community? Are they for us or against us? Does this sound like our political conversations? So the Jewish believers, their world had changed with Jesus, but did they want it to change? This is the question. Did they want it to change so much that it would allow just anyone to join in? Now, one writer calls this text that we're going to read today, he says, perhaps this is the most significant ecclesiological, that's a big word for how the church should be, This is perhaps the most significant ecclesiological text in the entire New Testament. Now look at verse 11. I want to read a few verses and we're going to break these down as we go. Verse 11, here's what it says. 
Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles. Now, Paul's talking, first of all, to the Gentiles who were coming into the church. He says, remember, the, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called, quote, unquote, uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcisions, which is done in the body by human hands. He's saying you were Gentiles, you were uncircumcised, and you're called that by the ones who were the circumcision, the ones who were Jewish. Verse 12, he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship, citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now forget politics, that's the gospel, and praise God for that. We were far away, we've been brought near. And what I want to engage from this passage today is how do we live as citizens of the kingdom of God in this moment? Now, these first couple of verses give us the first point here. The first way we do this, the first way we engage this world with the politics of Jesus and the kingdom of God at, on our hearts and in our head and in our hands is that we have to remember our own story. We have to remember from where we have come. If the question of the early church was, do Gentiles get to be a part of our community? This was a question of identity. What did these ideas, these identities create for the Gentiles? One writer says that this language created a, a sense of otherness or difference to construct, and don't miss this, to construct a powerful notion of insiderness that reinforces and maintains identity. Do you realize so much of what we see politically today is about insider-outsider mentality? doesn't matter which side you're on. If you're on whatever side you're on, you consider everyone who thinks like you, believes like you, acts like you, talks like you, speaks like you, posts the articles like you to be the insiders. And everybody else is the outsiders. Now, citizenship in this day and age, you'll notice in this passage that Paul uses this idea of citizenship. He said, you had no citizenship in Israel. The idea of citizenship at this time varied throughout the Roman Empire. If you were a Roman citizen, you had ultimate insider status. You see, as Rome expanded, people had to figure out how to maintain citizenship to their cities and to Rome. Here's what's happening. Rome is expanding across the world. The Roman Empire is getting bigger. They're capturing cities. They're taking authority over these cities. And so the people in those cities had their citizenship to their local city, but they also then wanted to be citizens of Rome. They were living in a world where their allegiance was being pulled in multiple directions and communities could move up a scale of status by pledging more and more and more allegiance to Rome and they could petition Rome we want to petition you to allow us to move up the spectrum and so one, one writer says political multiplicity could become a kind of privileged unity under the perspective of an expanding state here's what that means as you kissed up to the empire you got more status aren't you glad we've bypassed that Uncitizens, those who were not considered, considered citizens, were in the negative realm. And if you were not a citizen, one writer said that the disenfranchised, to the disenfranchised, life seems good reason not worth living. And many choose, listen to this, many choose death rather than life after losing their citizenship. If you don't belong, you might as well die. That's what, that was written in the first century A.D., 
right? So here's what I'm saying about this. When we forget our story of faith, our story that Paul spells out of being far away from Christ and brought near, we will look for insider status to anything we can find. Many of us, we look for that in the community around us. We look for that at our jobs. We look for that in false relationships. And right now, our culture is consumed with trying to find our insiderness on the politics that we think make the most sense. And that's why we're so excited when we find the article, the social media stream, the thing that we can say, look, all you morons. I have found the one true news source. Are you with me? We're looking for insider status. Outsiders have no way of breaking through, by the way, in today's political climate. We have literally, and you saw this Tuesday night if you watched the debate, you saw this. We have literally shut down ideas. We have shut down conversation. The issue is, though, that debate Tuesday night, you can all sit like I did and criticize them, or you can go, you know what, this is reflecting me. This is the way I engage conversations. This is my issue. And when we start to remember our own story, as Paul starts, Gentiles, remember you were far away, now you've been brought near. When we remember our own story, it eliminates any insider mentality because guess what? Without grace, none of us belonged. None of us had a citizenship. We all started On the outside, who were the Gentiles? They were separate. They were excluded. They were hopeless, godless, Christless, just like us. And when we remember our own story, we remember grace. See, I would love for us to start to ask questions in this political climate. Why is this person that I can't agree with? Why is this person who frustrates me so much? Why why is their version of politics so tied to these passions? Do you know why? Do you know why your version of politics is so tied to your passions? Because you have a story just like they do. You have things you care about just like they do. And we are able in the power of Christ, in the grace of Christ, to love the ones who disagree with us when we remember our own story of grace. See, this is, this is what I think part of the issue is right now. We're all fighting. I, I think President Trump was brilliant for campaigning with Make America Great Again because I think the majority of human, humans in our country want to see a great country. The issue is we all disagree on what greatness means. The issue is we have different perspectives of what that means. And the problem that divides so many of us is we're convinced that because your idea of greatness doesn't match mine, you are stupid, dumb, outside, you don't get it, you're ignorant, why wouldn't you get it, and you therefore become my enemy. Are you with me? Are we uncomfortable yet? I got two more points. Let's look at verse 14. Here's what it says, Paul goes on. He says, for he himself is our peace. Christ himself is our peace who has made the two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, you want to know what Jesus was all about? Here's the purpose. Here's the purpose for the church. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came, listen, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. What a powerful scripture. And I don't even have time to go into the depth that I should with this. But here's the second way we engage as citizens of the kingdom of God in today's political world. 
We remember our story, but second, we recognize that Christ tears down walls. Christ always tears down walls. Now, you, you can say, and, and you may think this and others think this, the, these political conversations that people don't want to have in church, I, I hear this all the time, you shouldn't talk about politics, just close your mouth, just focus on God. The problem is the political conversations that we don't want to have in church are deeply affecting our churches. Like, that's the reality that we live with. We are set up to be divided, especially, and you know this, in the next month. The walls of hostility are being built up. We are facing an election where the goal, the intent, the purpose of the people with the most influence and power is to divide us. And you remember that because it happened four years ago, didn't it? You remember this from 2016. It was so super divided. We saw this, and I'm telling you, I saw this in churches. It was not kept separate. We felt this. I felt this right after the 2016 election. Think about this. Back in 2016, we saw churches that were in predominantly Republican counties, and they felt like we won. Like, we did it. And that Sunday after the election, they finally clapped when Beck stopped clapping. They kept clapping. They were excited. They were singing loud, right? They were singing all the songs, all was well. But then, here's the reality of how divided we were. The churches in the non-Republican counties, they didn't want to sing at all. Let's just not have music. Something was lost. It was so emotional. You remember, we were handing out comfort animals, like by the dozens. Here's a fish. Just go hold it. Not for very long. Put it back in the water, right? Like, that's, that's what was taking place. And, and I thought, I'm going to tell you the truth. I thought we can just keep going. We can just be the church, just do what we do, not really deal with it. And I felt and experienced that. And I remember the way after 2016, the way that the political climate began to more deeply affect us as churches than I've ever seen in my entire life. I had people I know who quit churches or walked away from following Jesus because they literally felt scared by the version of Christianity that they were seeing. And then, and then my Republican friends who followed Jesus were like, scared? Scared of what? Are you with me? We won. We will have judges protecting life. Why are we scared? And so here's what we realize, and you have to get this. Nothing, absolutely nothing divides us like politics. And, and you got to go deeper because nothing divides us like fear. Nothing divides us like politics, and nothing divides us like fear. Now, here's the thing. When this happens, when division happens and fear is the dividing factor, as it is now, you can raise a lot of money in that moment. Are you with me? You can generate all kinds of resources when you peddle fear. You can't raise as much money, and our culture knows this better than us. You can't raise as much money when you're not peddling fear. So our world is being pumped, this constant barrage of fear. Republicans are going to take away your rights to vote. Be very afraid. Democrats are going to take away all your guns. Be very afraid. If a Republican's elected, it's the end of the world. If a Democrat's elected, we're going to become Russia communists. Like, just be afraid. And then we follow that with, for $25, you can help the cause. For $100, you can, you, you're going to beat the... But, but here's the question that I think we need to ask. What do we fear? What exactly do we fear... In the U.S., you know what we fear? We fear loss. We fear something taken away, loss of control, loss of opportunity, loss of future for children, loss of freedom, loss of security. And I want to say this to you because this is really relevant to our cultural moment. For white people, we fear what might happen. We have theories about what might happen. 
And we fear what could be. But, and listen to this, for, for brown and black people, they fear what has already happened. We have theories, predominantly Caucasian, of what could happen. African-American, brown, Hispanic, Latino, they, they have history. We have theory, they have history. But it's all fear. And it's all fear of loss. So here's the thing about all this fear. When we are driven by this, as so many are today, when the fear that is being peddled seeps into us, we will not only be victims of the fear, we will be divided because fear produces more fear and it also produces anger. And fear creates a division that is being seen all over the place. And Jesus, in this passage, we see he wants to tear down the walls of his hostility. So what are the walls of hostility, right? What we, could, we could just run down the list, right? Partiality, racism, pride, arrogance, anger, fear. The walls of hostility can create despair and hopelessness. And here's the question that I think we got to ask. Do we love the barriers so much that we actually miss the scripture that tells us Jesus is destroying the barriers? Some of us are so comfortable with the barriers because it doesn't make us feel afraid when we're safe behind our walls. How did Jesus remove the walls? The scripture says he did it. He gave us peace through the cross. Love poured out peace to those far and peace to those near. He calls the prodigal sons home. Listen to this. He calls the prodigal sons home who have gone away and squandered the love that he offered. And he looks at the older brother and says, you too are welcome to the party. He destroyed the walls through the cross. Why did he do it? Why did he do that? The scripture is so clear. Go back and read the scripture this week. By the way, on our online content, we're putting out the passages that we're studying the next four weeks. We're putting out prayer points on Wednesday nights just to talk about in more depth how do we pray right now with these things. How did he do it? Why did he do it? To create one new humanity. Ephesians says Jesus did all this. He destroyed the barriers, the walls of hostility because he wanted to create one new humanity for the sake of carrying peace to the world. You know what I realized? And this is so hard. I, I realize this, but I haven't yet started to practice this. I'm working on it. I had a friend tell me this. He said, as I'm getting older, he's like a year older than me. I don't like when people my age are saying that. I'm getting older. He said, I realize there's really nobody that I need to be angry at. I hated when he said that because there are lots of people that I feel like I have a right to be angry at, right? Just, just more, come on, like go with, some of you are like, yeah, you own it. Come on. Like the dividing walls have been torn down by the compassion and the love of Jesus. Jesus loves tearing down these walls. And if the citizens, listen, back to this series, if the citizens of the kingdom of God cannot embody the destruction of barriers, in a tumultuous political season, how do we expect the world to ever see Christ? Here's the last part of this passage. Verse 19. Consequently, Paul says, you are no longer, here's where this, this series came from, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Man, I've got like a whole three sermons on that phrase, that we are rising to become a holy temple. And in him, watch this, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we want to know how to engage this culture as citizens of the kingdom of God. We remember our story. We recognize that Christ wants to tear down the dividing walls. Here's the last part of this. We live into our present identity. 
Aren't you glad you're not bound to your past story? Aren't you thankful? Some of you, you, you like, you don't realize how messed up you were. And it shows, because we, we need to get this. Aren't you glad we're not held captive to our past? We are called to live into this present identity. This passage, Paul says, you were far away. You were excluded. You were without hope. You were without God. Friends, that's your story. That's my story. But you've been brought near, and now we are citizens with God's people. We are members of his household. And you know what this means? I'm going to say this. Some of you are not going to like this, but you need to hear it. Allegiance to God and his kingdom should always surpass allegiance to our country, our politics, and the personalities that run it. Got to hang on to that. I, I was at a, a, a concert one time. I was, I was a part of a church. They were hosting this concert. If I said the artist, you'd know exactly who it is. An amazing artist. Amazing, amazing artist. God ordained and has called and led this artist to do an incredible ministry. But this artist jumped into this, this just incredible concert, and the people are there. It's packed. People are engaged. They're watching it. And I'm telling you, at one point, the artist finished his worship stuff. You know what I mean? Like he finished the worship songs, and he went into a patriotic medley. Now, listen, I don't have a bit of problem with that. I have deep respect, love for our country, and so much respect and admiration and, and, and gratitude for the soldiers that have died to defend our country. I'm not taking away from any of that. What I want to speak to is the church, because in that moment, the energy, the worship, the passion of the church far excelled their appreciation of that patriotic moment versus the worship of Jesus that had been taking place. And here's what I'm, the point I'm trying to make in this is that oftentimes I see us on Sunday mornings, I watch us, I see our posture, I feel our, our, our engagement of worship, and it's the same old ritual. We're singing the hymns, we're singing the songs, and yeah, they want us to clap, they want us to, we'll just get through this, get to the sermon. But if we were to introduce the patriotic song, everything comes to a different level. And friends, my fear in that is not that we should not have respect and honor for our country. I love that. My fear in that is that oftentimes that allegiance to our country is superseding our allegiance to Christ. And if you don't believe that, look at the political conversations today. Look at where we are. We have to be honest about this. Sometimes I think we worship the flag more than we worship Jesus. And our love for each other has to surpass our division with each other. Friends, in this passage, we are called to rise and become the temple of God. We have access to God. This was radical thinking. We are no longer individuals. Your faith, Christians, and this is the, this is the great heresy, I think, that has permeated America. Your faith is not just about you getting to heaven. It is about that, but it's about us being the church that brings heaven to earth. That's the reality of what we're called to. We are called, the temple for the Jewish people was where they went. Then they said, when they said, we want to know what God wants for us, we want to see what God has for us, they would go to the temple. The temple had become corrupt, and God says, Paul says in this passage, you are now the dwelling place of God. And when you function in unity, when you live into that identity that God has called you to, when you rise to become that holy temple, the rest of the world is going to see that's what Jesus looks like. That's what it means for God to dwell among his people. Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of your faith rather than create a version of your faith that support your politics? As we close, I was trying to think about how, how to illustrate this. And, and this is probably maybe one of the worst illustrations I've ever come up with, but it made sense to me. So you get it, right? 
When we ask this question, are we willing to let our allegiance to God and his kingdom supersede our own passions for what will take place the next month? I want you to think about this idea of the holy temple. Are you willing to be the living temple with the church, not just by yourself? You don't get to go home and be, I can't stand the rest of humanity from now till November 3rd. So I will isolate and I will become the holy temple. No, you're a brick in the temple. <laughs> Some of you, you're a block. Like that's what. Are you willing to become the holy temple with God's people? Now, here's my question. When, when you train a dog, right? When you, this is the bad illustration, but you've got to go with it. When you get the puppy, you get the crate for the puppy, right? And you put up the wall in the crate. Are you with me? And you put the pee pad in the back. Why do we do that? Because the dog will go to that spot, will do its business. I love how we frame this. Do the business, right? And then it leaves its business there and keeps the front space nice and clean. Good, good dogs, right? That's, that's what we hope. That kind of seems innate to this puppy. Would the dog, this I'm just not sure it's going to work. I'm like, can I get it back? I can't get it back right now, right? What if we're training this puppy and we watch the puppy and the puppy goes back to the pee pad, does its business, and then the puppy lays down and sleeps for four hours? Oh, such a good puppy. No. Like the puppy's dwelling in its own filth. Are you with me? Like that's, that's what we would think. When I look at what we're called to be as the church, this living temple, this holy dwelling place of God, I think, man, what an amazing, beautiful picture we're called to be, that we should live into the mission and the calling of God to go and reach the lost, to go and be solutions to the addiction that destroys our world, to go and say, it is unacceptable that there are people in our world today who don't have food. It is unacceptable that children are getting abused or living in homes because there are not enough foster parents and we are called to those things it's unacceptable and the people of God should not let that happen that's the holiness of the front of that puppy crate but what happens when we get swept up as we have in the past years the past decades and the church becomes this cesspool of yeah we're holy yeah we're on mission but by the way let's infiltrate everything political and argue and and get really angry and just get mad at people then it's like the church has said we're going to take and do our business here and then we're going to lay down and sleep in it it's like the holiness of god that the church is called to has been polluted by everything that we can't get over We've lost sight of the calling to unity, the calling to love, the calling to engage folks. I'm not telling you don't be political. I'm saying go after it. Go be political. Engage the world in the way that you're called to, but don't lose sight that you're called to love. You're called to love the lost at all costs, and that, my friends, supersedes whoever you want to win four weeks from now because the king of the universe is still the king of the universe, and the mission of God does not change based on who is in the seat of authority. But some of us, that fear, that anger, that anxiety, it's so real right now. And we got to get back on track of going, we are citizens of a kingdom. And yeah, the politics of Jesus matters, but we're citizens of a kingdom.